You're listening to the Diversity Beyond the Checkbox podcast. I'm your host, Jackie Ferguson, certified diversity executive, writer, human rights advocate, and co-founder of the Diversity Movement. On this podcast, I'm talking to trailblazers, game changers, and glass ceiling breakers who share their inspiring stories, lessons learned, and insights on business, inclusion, and personal development. Hi, friends. We're currently recording our season eight episodes, and let me tell you, there are some incredible guests for the upcoming season. Over the past few years, I have had the honor of interviewing inspiring people, business leaders, authors, humanitarians, trailblazers, and more who have made me laugh, made me cry, made me learn, grow, and reconsider perspectives. I hold each of these conversations close to my heart. Normally, we do our seasons in 12 episodes and a compilation episode with a highlight clip from each of my guests. And I'm going to release a recorded episode before the start of the season. This episode I recorded with Pastor Tony Loudon just a few days ago. This conversation impacted me so deeply, vulnerably sharing his background, growing up in a trap house, and how he became an advocate for incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people, and an advocate for at-risk youth. Stories reflecting on some of his experiences with President Jimmy Carter and President Carter's stories on how Black Americans poured into him as an individual, a leader, and a humanitarian. As we close Black History Month and prepare to say goodbye to our oldest living president, I couldn't hold this episode from you. Sometimes we all need a reminder when there is so much wrong with the world, that there are beacons of light out there that give us hope for the future, and hope in each other. So I'm sharing this gift with you on my 49th birthday. I hope it blesses you as much as it blessed me. Fair warning, you may need some tissues. Tony, thank you. Jackie, thank you for having me. I feel honored. Oh, thank you. Will you tell us a little about yourself, your background, your family, your identity, whatever you'd like to share? Well, I'm just a kid from North Philadelphia that have sound, has found favor in everything that I God has allowed me to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm originally from North Philadelphia, 10th and Cumberland. So mm-hmm. some people, when they say they're from Philadelphia, you always ask them where, because yeah. they could be from upstate Pennsylvania and they claim mm-hmm. Philadelphia. But I'm from 10th and Cumberland, and I, and I call it one of the worst ghettos in America. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up there uh, in Philadelphia where my mom ran a trap house in that area. Mm-hmm. And I was a slave of that trap house. And mm-hmm. for those of your listeners that might not know what a trap house is, yeah. it's a bootleg house to the OGs. It's mm-hmm. a speakeasy for the old, old, old OGs. Right. And for this Generation Z, it's a trap house and all the rap music. Mm-hmm. Well, I was a slave of that house where it was my job to come home every day to clean up the mess, the vomit, take out the trash, pick up the needles, sometimes pick up my mother off the floor and clean up her mm-hmm. vomit. But I grew up in that, what I call that filth. But I had a nana that said, if you come to church, I'll bake you a banana pudding. Mm. And I would take that journey, 27 blocks of 27th and Lehigh, and go to church on every Sunday, chasing that banana pudding. But more importantly, um, my nana would always speak life into me. Mm-hmm. After church, she would take this bomb with baby oil and cocoa butter and rub it into a bomb and then tell me to take off my shirts and take off my pants. Mm -hmm. Where she would rub it into the wounds on my body and I would get 
from a beating with a braided extension cord from my mother. Mm. Uh, for, not from being a bad kid, not from being in the gangs or following my uncles or nephews, anything like that. But just because I, I came home from school with after school activities and being late to clean up the trap house. Oh and so gosh. growing up in all that gave me a perspective. It showed me something different. I knew all along that that there was a call on my life and then that God wanted me to do something different because I was always asking him the questions, why? Why did I have to be born in a family like this? Yeah. Like, why is all my uncles involved in gangs and shooting? Why are black men shooting and killing each other over a street corner they don't own? Right. Why are we doing all those things? And how come we're, my family's in and out of prisons? I was always asking why. You just couldn't feed me anything because I always had these questions. Mm-hmm. And um, getting out of North Philadelphia, being able to go and uh, get an education, um, travel around the country. I always knew that I wanted to put back. Sports gave me that opportunity to play mm-hmm. sports. Yeah. Um, and it showed me a new new world other than just the ghetto of North Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. You know, And it gave me an opportunity to have a passion to want to do something about it. I think it's when when people talk about all the accolades that Tony Loudon has done and stuff like that, it's because I'm working hard to kill myself mm. for what I grew up in. I'm working hard to try to do everything I can to change the lives of other kids and people that come behind me. You know, we can't celebrate black history unless we want to be a part of the new history mm-hmm. that we want to try to create for our, for our people. You can't celebrate Harriet Tubman and still not want to have black men and black women free That's to right. this day because we're still not free yet because mm-hmm. there's so many different things that hold us down and have their foot on our necks. So that's a little bit about the, the makeup of Tony Loudon. Tony, thank you so much for sharing that and, and for that vulnerability. You know, one of the things that we do as humans is make assumptions about people and and who they are and what their background is based on what they're doing now, right? Or what they look like or what those accolades are and and understanding that backstory and and where that passion comes from. Because, you know, I read a, a brief snippet for our listeners of the things that you are doing and have done. It's so brief. And the research that I did, just understanding more about you. And it's amazing all of the things that you touch and influence. And understanding that backstory and that drive is is so amazing. And, you know, I, I had a Nana that was amazing and poured love into me as well. Um, and so I, I resonate with that and, and know how important um, those family members can be. Maybe one of these days we can honor the nanas, right? That I love it. The difference in so many of our lives. Absolutely, absolutely. So we talked about where that passion comes from. Tell us a little about some of the the organizations that you're involved in. Let's start with ViaPath <clears throat> Technologies. What's the mission of that organization? I'm really excited about ViaPath. Um, it gives me a unique opportunity to be able to do a lot of things I want to do at the White House. Mm-hmm. Without government being involved, yeah. um, without uh, having to worry about an election or trying to win an election, mm-hmm. ViPath allows me to be able to be the vice president of reintegration and education and community engagement. Mm-hmm. Simply means that it gives me an opportunity to do everything I can to help men and women inside of our prisons through technology, uh, using technology to reengage and bring families back together. 
mm-hmm. using technology to put high school diplomas on, on tablets on the inside, heating and air, welding, social skills, career skills, it, all those things I wanted to do while I was at the White House. And now I get an opportunity to do it because this is the mission of the company. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because our CEO have had a, a family member that was just as involved and when they came home, they couldn't make it because they didn't have any resources. We call corrections corrections because we believe that it should correct people's lives when they come home. Yes. When in reality, we should call it warehousing because we're, that's all we're doing. Mm-hmm. And so this gives me an opportunity to change the game with that. So, for example, we just loaded... North Carolina a week ago with 39,000 tablets, including men and women who are on death row. Wow. And some listeners say, we give tablets to people on death row? Absolutely. Because that man, that woman may have a child growing up in the hood of North Philadelphia, mm-hmm. who you want him to keep that engagement and speak to his son or his daughter, don't mm-hmm. follow my footsteps. Yeah. They might not be able to go and visit them in the prison. Mm-hmm. But then what if, what if by chance going through the process, this person sitting on death row, get an opportunity to be found out that they're innocent. So shouldn't we be looking at ways to correct right. them too? And not only that, because of the staffing shortages around the nation, it keeps the facility safe when inmates are learning educational stuff, learning stuff that changes their mentality, learning career stuff, of mm-hmm. finding ways to communicate back and forth with their families, changing the game for real. Not just saying we're going to put lipstick on a pig, but do whatever we can to change the game. And that's what we're doing in this space. And I'm really excited about being a part of that because I believe it changes the game. Also in North Carolina, we're putting all their educational stuff on the tablets as well. We're mm-hmm. putting uh, uh, their manufacturing stuff on tablets. Uh, for the state of uh, Tennessee, we put all the correctional training for staff on tablets, on, yeah. also on their computers. Because the pandemic has changed the game, mm-hmm. those annoying thing about prisons, volunteers can't get in like they used to because staff shortage and because we're still dealing with the with COVID. Right. Those who's helping with high school diplomas or GEDs can't get in like they used to. Prison fellowship, they can't get in like they used to. There's lockdowns in prisons that take place because of sh- staff shortages. North Carolina has closed three prisons because of staff shortages. Right. And so how do we continue to deliver a spirit of excellence? Because men and women have a, a, a time certain. They're coming home. No mm-hmm. one's going to say, we're going to pause your date and then catch up later on and right. prepare you to get ready to come home. So how do we give them what I call transitional accountability plans? When there's no reentry counselor coming inside the prison, we look at ways of doing it through technology where they can figure out where am I going to eat? Where am I going to live? Where am I going to get a job? Right. We even have an application on our tablets called Honest Jobs, mm-hmm. where a person can actually look for jobs, put in the crime that they've committed, start mm-hmm. looking for jobs, find those jobs, apply for those jobs, or mm-hmm. start training while they're on the inside with our tablets for those jobs. Wow, it's Jackie, it's amazing. a true game changer. And I Absolutely. am so excited to be about to be a part of this. We are uh, one of the largest tablet com- companies in the nation. We have 60 plus percent of the market and, and growing like crazy. Um, and we're getting into juvenile space as well because we have to do that with juveniles as well. Yeah. And so it, it's, a, it's an honor to be working for Viapads. That's so amazing. And, yes. you know, as we 
expand the definition of diversity from race and gender to include other aspects like age and disability and neurodiversity and Mm -hmm. personality, right? And experience. What we're not talking about often enough is the experiential diversity of formerly incarcerated people, right? So that's not yet part of the conversation. People want to say, you know, oh, we should have more equity and inclusion. And then when, you know, you say something about formerly incarcerated, you get the close up, right? And I, Last year, I wrote a, um, an article for Forbes on this specific topic in detail, understanding in my own research that so many of the people that are incarcerated are incarcerated for these small crimes that very often relate to drugs that now are illegal in many states right. Right. that they wouldn't be serving time for that are that are, you know, not, uh, you know, dangerous to other people type Mm -hmm. of crimes, right? And we don't realize that. We just put them into this figurative box the same way we do an actual box. And and we don't want to say, okay, now it's time to help them get this second chance that that Mm -hmm. we say, you know, when you come out of there, you know, do better, you know, have a a legitimate career and be gainfully employed and all of the things, and and then we're not helping with that, and that's that's such a problem. What do we, Tony, as business leaders, need to be considering when we're receiving applications from formerly incarcerated individuals, or even a step further, how do we benefit as an organization and as a society from giving these folks the opportunity for gainful employment? I, I want to say that's the biggest challenge uh, that our nation needs to really put the gas pedal on and change the whole game because we have 78 million people in our nation that has felonies, 78 million. And some of them are walking streets right now in this invisible prison because they can't get a job. Mm -hmm. They can't get an apartment to live because they have a felony. Mm -hmm. Um, They don't have their um, vital records because they have a felony. Uh, Some that have been arrested and and come from public housing can't go back into public housing because they have Mm -hmm. a felony. If we truly are going to be this nation of second chances, we have to give individuals who are now on our tablets that we're working with a second chance. Mm-hmm. They're stacking credentials on the inside of facilities waiting to come home. But what we do, we put them in this box, this invisible prison and mm-hmm. saying, oh, you know what? Not in my backyard. You can't live here. Oh, we're not hiring felons. And here we are in a great resonation where people are staying home and not working and we need labor. Right. We need people Absolutely. who can come in and work. And so in, in my experience, I've seen where individuals who are formerly incarcerated have become some of our best workers. Mm-hmm. They want to work. They want to provide for their families. They want to come back home. So we have to ask ourselves the question, do we constantly push them to the side when they end up living on our streets, living on our bridges because they can't take care of themselves? Because desperate people do desperate things. That's right. The federal government. Uh, Department of Labor would bond a company, give them a bond to protect them from theft or anything that may harm them. Not only that, the federal government gives you also a tax credit of $2,500 for hiring returning citizens. So it's a win-win. The other biggest piece that I, I strongly believe is that we can start moving our economy in ways we've never moved before. Mm. Because all the vacancies that we have right now, we can't get things to market. Because we have all these labor shortages. 
But we have this surplus of individuals that want to work. Our company at Viapath, we're hiring returning citizens. Mm-hmm. We're putting them in key roles because they're forensic peer mentors. You'll mm-hmm. find across the nation that there's Department of Corrections that are hiring returning citizens to come back in and mentor men and women. Why? Because they're, they're forensic peer mentors, right? Or credible messengers in some case. When I was with the federal government, we created a policy that allowed the Washington, D.C. parole and probation to hire credible messengers Mm -hmm. to come alongside of people who are coming back home to be the guys, their GPS, to show them the way. Mm -hmm. Not only that, in our company, we're standing up a staffing agency to hire returning citizens across the country so that those who may be just as involved already out, those who are just as involved coming out, They can go to a place, sign up and get temp work. And we will take the risk because we know that these people want to work. Yeah. There's a stigma that individuals who are just as involved shouldn't be working. Well, Mm -hmm. let me flip it. There are politicians who comes up on ethic charges in our Congress. Mm -hmm. They end up going through the ethic committees. They end up being found guilty. They're not kicked out of office. That goes into their files. They end up staying in their positions instead of having a stigma that they are a returning citizen justice involved. We should do the same about men and women who are in our prisons and come home with a nonviolent record or change their lives, Mm -hmm. wanting to get back into the community to do whatever we can. If, if they want to feed their children, isn't that what the things that we want so that their children don't end up incarcerated? That's because right. if the parents are desperate, the children are desperate. Yes. When the pandemic hit Las Vegas, the hospitality capital of the world, um, had an issue because they needed labor. People mm-hmm. were not working. They worked with a program called Hope for Prisoners. Hope for Prisoners did all the training, the men and women that was incarcerated, and when they got out, they joined the Hope for Prisoners program under John Ponder. He trained them for 18 months. He became mentoring them. The sheriff that arrested them also came alongside with this individual and put their name on them. And Las Vegas stayed open and open faster than any other city in the nation. Why? Because they took down the stigma. They not only put them in hospitality jobs, warehousing, manufacturing, CDLs. They put them in all over Las Vegas and they're still doing it to this day. And that's why John Ponder's program have a 6% recidivism rate. Wow. The nation's average is 71 plus. Mm-hmm. And he has a 61% recidivism rate in Las Vegas, Sin City. Mm-hmm. What's the secret sauce? Yeah. It's being able to trust the individuals and know that we can take the protective measures to give them an opportunity to be back in our communities. A lot of counties and cities have done what we call ban the box, but ban the box is not good unless you put somebody in the box. Mm -hmm. You got to put them in a chair in your company and give them a job. Women who are firefighters in prison should be to come home and be a firefighter when they, when they get out. Women and men who are putting out fires in California with, with the California uh, uh, department of correction, when they get out, they should be applied in the state to get an opportunity. We should ban the box on industrial license all across the nation. Because if I'm learning how to cut hair inside the prison, I should be able to get my license with the Secretary yeah. of State and come home and feed my family Absolutely. and not work in the shadows. 
Come mm-hmm. out of the shadows. This is what companies need to do. And if, if a company really wants to try to be a good social justice partner in our communities across the nation, we do it by helping these communities that are in distress, That's where right. there's tension, and bring jobs in those communities and help those communities grow, not just make a profit off those communities. We should allow them to work in those Absolutely. communities. Absolutely. And, you know, I love that. And, you know, another thought about being incarcerated, if you think about our criminal justice system, what we see is you have two people, different demographics, commit the same crime. One's going to prison, one's not. And so, but they're, they're, they did the same thing, right? And so, but you're, you're putting those stigmas on the one that went to prison versus the one that didn't. Right. And and if you think about, you know, the the wealth gap and, and the earning potential for a person with a felony versus not, it's so significant. And and going back to that first point, if we want to create that systemic equity, right, that that so many of us say that we want from, you know, from in our communities and our organizations, we have to have that in mind and consider that and give that equity a real shot from the criminal justice and, and the formerly incarcerated individual's perspective. So, I totally agree. So if your listeners um, go down to North Philadelphia and they mm-hmm. know a Temple University, they'll see that Temple University has done some great things up and down Broad Street, up and down maybe two or three blocks into Broad Street, creating mm-hmm. housing for students, creating an economic engine for students who are going to school to work and do all those things. But the people that have lost their property in those areas or the gentrification in those areas. Right. They have not went deep enough in those communities. Every city has a, a 10 to 15, 20 year plan of where they're gonna grow and what the city gonna look like in 10 to 15, 20 years. Every mayor has that plan. That's right. But what happens in these distressed communities, they're not a part of that plan. Usually they're part of plans where we need that community. We need that community for a ballpark or a football stadium. Yep. But more importantly, you need to include them in the plan, not just when you want their votes during midterms and general elections. And speaking of voting, we should also allow people with felonies to get their voting rights back. If they're yes. true, a true returning citizen, mm-hmm. allow them to come back and vote. You want them to work, pay taxes, but can't vote. That's called mm-hmm. taxation without representation. That's right. If you mm-hmm. want to bring them right back into the community and make them feel like they're part of the American fabric. Open the door wide open because how do I lose my citizenship just because I went to jail for a mistake, maybe on some marijuana that you now make legal. That's right. We should look at ways of doing everything we can to take our prison system and say it's a system where we're trying to correct behavior, not punish people with a lifetime of poverty. And that's what we're doing in a lot of our communities. Some communities you have what we call drug courts. Some communities you have where people go to prison. Some communities you have where you have traffic court. Some communities you have where people go to prison. There's a big disparity in sentencings across our nation. And the federal government has to address that. I tried to address that when I was at the White House. Unfortunately, um, elections has consequences. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that a little bit, Tony. Former President Donald Trump appointed you as re-entries are for formerly incarcerated individuals entering the workforce. 
which former President Jimmy Carter wholly endorsed and was excited about that. What was it like to work in that environment? And tell us the difference in, in working and, in, in, you know, having conversations and the mindset of two different presidents of different parties. Can you give us a little bit of the inside scoop there and how you navigated yeah. that um, with President Trump? Well, I, I, I think, first of all, I've been able to navigate that all my life growing up. Um, when I was in California and I stopped playing sports, I worked for Willie Brown who at that time was the Speaker of the House in California. And I was a staff member that ran the Democratic Caucus for the California legislature. And then five years later, I ended up running the Republican Caucus under Jim Brulte for Pete Wilson. So I've, I've been able to navigate on both sides of the aisles. It's very important that listeners know that I, I turned that job down three times at the White House. I had three different uh, what I call dog and pony shows where they gave me a tour of the White House. They sure. took me all around in the East Wing and the West Wing, all those different things, recruiting me to be a part of the organization. I turned the job down three times. And then one day, I'm sitting at home and my um, uh, phone was going off like crazy at four o'clock in the morning. And a friend said, congratulations. I'm congratulations on what? And then he sent me an article saying that President Trump intends on appointing uh, President Carter's pastor as a reentry czar for the whole country, and I'm mm -hmm. like, "You got to be kidding me!" And so that <laughs> night, <laughs> well, that morning, I, I, I got up early so I can get to President Carter before the news got him. Unfortunately, it had already gotten to him. Oh wow! And then I sat down, drove down to the, his presidential compound, sat down, and told him what was going on and how we got there. And um, he said, well, "I." I think you should take the job because when your country calls you to take the job, you have to answer if you are a true servant leader with a servant heart. Mm -hmm. And then he said to me, I just got one question. Are you still going to be my pastor? If that's so, then I need you to come home every weekend and, and, and be my pastor. And mm -hmm. so I said, absolutely. My, I keep my word to you that I will be your pastor. And so for the moment that I got sworn in, when I put my left hand on the Bible and, and raised my right hand, I made a commitment to serve the nation, not to serve the president. Mm -hmm. You serve the, you at the will of serving the president, but you are, you are chosen and appointed to serve the nation. Mm -hmm. You don't look to make rules or opinions that's in the best interest of the president. It's always in the best interest of the nation. Absolutely. And that's something I learned from President Carter. Mm -hmm. Was it tough sometimes? Absolutely, because there's a lot of things that I didn't agree with personally. Right. The toughest part for me, which was the greatest disappointment, was when I had an opportunity and other African-Americans with me to stop our nation from exploding because of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. uh, all the African-Americans on the staff that worked on criminal justice reform, mm -hmm. including some other members that was elected, went into the Oval Office. And he asked for recommendations. And we all mm -hmm. went around the room. Yeah, And I was very wide open about what we should do. I talked about the recommendations from the police commission that I was also a part of, that we've already had some issues, some policies that can address the issues to stop our people from rioting, that will give them clarity that no officers should have immunity, that the entire world saw that this was murder. Mm -hmm. And we should call it out like we call it out. Don't worry about a base. We don't, we don't worry about a base. We lead, and sometimes those places are hard to lead from, but we lead and we tell the yes. truth. And then we talked about the fact that, you know, you should hold a press conference mm -hmm. and, and, and call it out. 
and and don't worry about the police unions and all. Just call it out because a lot of them are calling it out. Yeah. And absolutely. that didn't happen. And and several nights later, um, our nation was on fire in so many places, mm-hmm. um, even in D.C. Yeah. And it broke my heart. Mm-hmm. It broke my heart that you know we had an opportunity to lead and get out in front of it, and and be able to let America know that we're going to stand up for justice like everyone else will stand up for justice. And, and and that being said, I mean if you look at both parties, I think, um, and it's just Tony Loudon speaking now, who I don't worship the the donkey or the elephant, I worship the lamb. Mm-hmm. We 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 should have signed the John Lewis bill to give people their voting rights. We should have signed the George Floyd bill, right? The Democrats at, at one time had have, is in control of the House and the Senate and the presidency and had an opportunity to sign right. the George Floyd bill. And that bill still have not been signed. Same way the John Lewis bill. The Republicans need to look at ways of making sure they not shouldn't be using race-based issues to divide our country. That's right. um, and, and the George Floyd, when we see things that happen to minorities, people of color, or people who are just as involved, you say exactly what you saw. You stop worrying about the base. You worry about the nation because the nation is the base. Without yes. the nation, we have no base. What was it like? It was tough. Mm-hmm. But I did not allow it to correct my core. One of the greatest things that I really enjoyed was um, there was people who will pull me to the side from both parties and always asking me, how's President Carter? How's mm-hmm. President Carter? How's President Carter? Because there's, 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 there's a bunch of people in this nation that understand that our nation is a great nation. They understand that we have some tall trees who have served in some high places that have always done the right things. My Angelo's poem, When Great Trees Falls. And so when we have these great trees that summoned us, that's living with us right now, the Bible says there are a cloud of witnesses, mm-hmm. right? You and I were not there with Moses and Abraham and all those other cloud of witnesses they talk about in the Bible, but we are here today where we see some great leaders leading in our spaces and we allow people to tear them down, but quietly people behind who are not political and experts of political consultants say, how's President Carter? Mm-hmm. How's he doing? Because they know the man is the real deal. They know that he's a servant leader with the servant heart. And so, yes, it, I was torn, but I believe we accomplished a lot of good things under my watch as the reentries are for the nation. You know, thank you for sharing that. And it's good advice for any of us who are in positions of leadership to get out in front and, and be open and be vulnerable and speak the thing. Because whether it's a nation or an organization, people are looking for that vulnerability and that transparency to allow that a little bit of trust, right? I think one of the the issues that we have in our country is that bipartisan thing that we don't trust each other. We don't look for ways where we're connected uh, anymore. And we need to get back to that. And I think that vulnerability is right. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That trust issue, the people in Michigan don't mm-hmm. trust the government to take care of their water. Right. The people in Alabama don't trust the government to take care of their water. Mm-hmm. Now the people in Ohio don't trust the government to clean up from a, a, a train derailment and right. then for them to drink the water as well. We have a, a confidence, a lack of confidence 
in our leaders in, in our nation. That's and right. I think it's because they're always worried about running for office instead of upholding the office. Mm-hmm. It's a big difference. Yes. There's this That's big right. giant book that every president is given when they get elected, and it's called The, the Duties of the Presidents. President Carter's big book from when he was in office sits outside his office at the Carter Center at the Presidential Library. So this big, massive book sits there. And then there's this book that every politician, every leader, whether on state or county, any elected official or appointed official, take their left hand and their right hand and put it on the Bible, which is a very small, a much smaller book. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, they don't keep their commitment to the one that they swore to. They keep their commitment to the wedge issues and the divide and the lobbyists and all these things that they think that will make them popular. Mm-hmm. And that's what's hurting our nation in a way. We don't have no one that's real. No one yeah. that gets up and say, you know what? There shouldn't be a place in America where a person is afraid to drink their water. And that's we right. as a government, we should take care of that infrastructure. Absolutely. And anyone that travels abroad, you see Go to go to Haiti and see that China is building infrastructure in Haiti. Mm. Cuba, Jamaica, Africa. China is in the Pacific. They're in mm-hmm. they're now in the Atlantic building infrastructure. They're teaching military tactics in Africa, helping the military there. Have we become so divisive in our nation? that we're not looking at our borders where we're now surrounded economically, where we're now divided educationally, where we're so divided, where we have the biggest mass in, uh, incarceration system in the world. And, and we're not even building our own infrastructure with people around us, nor are we building infrastructure in our own country. And the people that we say that are against us are building infrastructure. I say we, we're imploding if we don't start electing other leaders. That understand mm-hmm. that. And I know, you know, I, I may get slapped on the hands with talking, to me, but this is this is the reality. This is why I love working for Viapath. Mm-hmm. It's like get an opportunity to build a, a infrastructure that changes people's lives mm-hmm. and get them into the communities where they can change their families' lives and change the trajectory of their lives, their families, their children's, and everyone. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I work so hard that I'm doing. People say, you're on the charter school commission. You're, you're, you're working with juveniles. You have a nonprofit. You're, you're, you're working with biopaths. How are you doing all those things? Yes. Infrastructure building. Mm. Because this has to be a holistic approach to change people's lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Tony, we're recording this podcast on February 23rd, 2023, and Jimmy Carter has been provided hospice care at home. Can you share how President Carter is processing this life transition? How is his family doing? I would I would ask everyone to say, to pray for him and his family. Mm-hmm. This is a very, very special time in their lives. Yeah. I, I, I try not to share anything that I know about the family and him because of mm-hmm. being his pastor. Yeah. But the one thing I, I can say is that the servant leader who has a servant heart who took a black man like me and asked me to be his pastor. Mm -hmm. And then not only did he ask me to be his pastor, but he also took me to a cemetery down in Archie, Georgia. Mm -hmm. Archie, Georgia 
is a little old town where sharecroppers lived in 1923, where Jimmy Carter was a little boy. This town, this cemetery that he took me to is a cemetery that has no cemetery marking. So when you drive down this road and then go into this dirt pathway, there is no markings that says, here is a cemetery. But once you get out of the car, you see hundreds and hundreds of grave sites. President Carter, one Saturday, said, Tony, you get here real quick because I want to take you for a ride. And he took me to the cemetery. Secret Service was pushing him in the wheelchair. His aides were behind him. Miss Rosen was there. Amy was there. And as they're pushing him, he's giving me a tour in, in my history. This is Bishop William Decker Bonner, AME pastor, who in 1928 introduced me to Jesus Christ. Wow. This is the 39th president saying that this black man, a sharecropper, a preacher, introduced him to Jesus Christ. Over here is Rachel Clark, who taught me about what it's like to be married and, and what a man should do and how he should take care of his bride. Over here, here's a gentleman here that worked on my father's farm. He served in World War I and died in that war. His son served in World War II and died in World War II. He gave me a history walk into my history. Mm-hmm. We have politicians today now saying that they're trying to take away that type of education in our books. If we lean into that kind of stuff and not lean into the type of history that President Carter, that blacks made a difference in President Carter's life in Georgia, all the way from the plantation to the farms where they were sharecroppers and even up until now, then you write me out completely because majority of the people that are in our prisons look like me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The majority of the inner cities that are exploding look like me. And so that's why I love him so much. That's and that's amazing. Why yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I know that's that's got to be hard for you. And you're getting the questions of, you know, how's he doing, right? How's his family doing? But are people checking on you? So thank yeah. you for sharing that. You know, it's it's so important that we do think about our history, right? And And here it's Black History Month. So Black history is American history. And we have to incorporate that into what the history of our um, country is, because it we wouldn't have the country we have without the the work of of black people in the in the United States and the the love and the heart and so many, so many different things that that make us who we are as individuals and as a nation. You know, this Black History Month, I would hope that your listeners, and I, I applaud you for all the work you do in this space. Thank you so much. Black History Month, I want your listeners to think about this. That African Americans did such great work for this nation when we were on the plantations, when Reconstruction took place, even during the Depression, World War I, World War II. We fought on both sides of the war during the Civil War. We've, we've done a lot. We, we helped build the White House. We've done all kinds of things. Only to get to the point now that surviving the plantation, here we are in 2023, 
majority of our prisons that are in the South, Angola prisons, prison in uh, Mississippi, other areas in the South, those prisons are on former plantations. Mm -hmm. The question that we have to ask ourselves in 2023 in Black history, how did we survive all those things and their great, 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 great grandchildren end up back on the plantation mm -hmm. in 2023 in record numbers in prisons? Prisons surrounded by cotton and they're still doing the agriculture work in those prisons. How do we still have a chain gang in um, Angola prison? When I was in the White House, one of my recommendations is to close six prisons that was former plantations. Mm -hmm. Because it would be symbolic that in this nation in 2023, we don't want African-Americans think that we're sending them back to the plantation. Mm -hmm. We have to get to the point that if we know our history, we know how not to repeat it. Yes. And I hope that African-Americans who listen to what I'm speaking, that I'm not trying to do anything about race baiting. What I'm saying is our children are killing each other. They're committing crimes. They're doing things in our communities. Yes, some of them may be innocent, but we're ending up back on the plantation after such a rich, strong history. How do we create Black Wall Street and end up back on the plantation? Mm. We are better than that. Yeah. And I, I know there's a lot of mitigating circumstances, but guess what? A black man and a black woman is on a podcast talking about how do we change our trajectory That's so right. it can be done. Absolutely. We can make it. We can do some incredible things in our nation. Absolutely. Tony, I mentioned earlier how much work you're doing and, and how many incredible things you are and have been involved with. You know, so many of us have a hard time just balancing, you know, professional work in our personal lives and, you know, trying to get our, you know, our, our mental wellness time in, right? And, and all of those things. Give us some insights on on how we create a balance or a blend with all of those things. Um, can you give us some tips on that? Yeah, Jack, I think work-family-life balance is crucial. Mm -hmm. I love to come home and watch my little baby girl play. She's five. Huh? You know, she's a high flyer. She's in pre-K doing. She's in kindergarten when she's supposed to be in pre-K because she has a November birthday. Uh -huh. And she's doing first grade work. Wow. But every day that I look at her, I'd say I have to do what I'm doing mm. and even more so yeah. because I don't know what the world is going to look like after I'm gone. Mm -hmm. And so since I have this Abraham challenge where I have a five-year-old in the latter part of my life, I got to look at ways of doing everything I can to change the nation. That's right. And so I give myself, you and I are on borrowed time. And we probably had the best of our lives and our adolescents' lives. Mm -hmm. But for now, it's all about legacy building yes. and being able to leave something that our children, our grandchildren can stand on. Mm -hmm. My five-year-old girl the other day, sitting while we're both watching TV, she said, Daddy, I got a question. I said, what, Tabitha? She said, when is this house going to be mine? This is a five-year-old. Wow. Asking about this new house that our daddy has purchased. Mm -hmm. When is it going to be hers? And I said to her, baby, it's already yours. You just mm -hmm. don't have the keys yet. Yeah. But you will get the keys. Why do you ask? 
She said, because I, I got some things I want to do around the house. <laughs> because I'm, in, I'm instilling in her mind, Jackie, mm-hmm. that she's allowing and she, I, she's expected to do big things. Mm-hmm. One day um, when I was on a Saturday, I go down to President Carter every Saturday to spend some spiritual time with him and his wife. And I was trying to get some rest. And her wife, my wife had already went to the dance studio to work on a program. And so Tabitha, I was at home babysitting Tabitha. Mm-hmm. And, and well, more like SpongeBob was babysitting and I'm laying across <laughs> the bed. Yeah. And, and Tabitha jumps on the bed and she says, Daddy, I want a strawberry milkshake. I said, Tabitha, it is eight o'clock in the morning. And where I get your strawberry milkshakes from, they are not open yet. Mm-hmm. And so you have to understand that I teach Tabitha that she shouldn't get frustrated. She shouldn't get upset. She should figure things out because she's allowed. And when her, when her tablet doesn't work or her, she can't get her books to do what they need to do or whatever, she figures out, don't complain. And so she jumped off the bed. And then um, about a minute later, she jumps back on the bed and she said, daddy, I said, what baby? She said, you are allowed and figure it out. <laughs> and oh so my gosh. she's my balance. I got up I off the bed. That. I put on some flip flops. I put on some sweats. I put my baby in the back of the car. Mm-hmm. And when I got my baby a strawberry milkshake, because I had to figure it out. What drives me, yes, we have, we all have busy days. We all are doing life, but we got to figure it out so mm-hmm. that we can have a better place. Jack, I'm tired of driving into places like Atlanta and seeing majority of African-American men sleeping underneath the bridges. Yeah. I'm tired of traveling into DC and seeing men and women who've gotten out of prison now sleeping on our Capitol steps outside the Capitol. I'm tired of seeing going down to Los Angeles, seeing a skid row that majority of the people of the hundreds of thousand people in the garment district that are on skid row are African-Americans. I can't close my eyes and say it don't exist Mm -hmm. when I know the numbers. If we are the majority of the homeless, if we're the majority in our prison, if we're the majority that's killing each other with black-on-black crime, a genocide is taking place. Mm-hmm. What are we going to do? Yeah, We have to do something about it. So I'm, I'm just honored that Viapath gives me an opportunity to help build the infrastructure platform to be able to not only help the people that I love, but also help others, both black, mm-hmm. white, and brown, Yes, to be able to um, change the trajectory of our lives, and to be able to change the trajectory of our company and do more than one thing I love, and that is to figure it out. Yes. Well, you know, you've said the word infrastructure uh, a few times in this uh, episode. And, you know, whether that's family infrastructure or systemic, you know, institutional in- infrastructure, it's important. And it's important for our the legacy that, that we're trying to leave. It's important for opportunities to create equity and we have to have that infrastructure absolutely that infrastructure is so important the pandemic it pulled the covers off america mm-hmm. because students in our rural communities could not do their homework because they did still since That's 1980 right. did not have an on-ramp to the information highway they had no That's broadband right. or internet mm-hmm. even in some of our inner cities kids did not have access to the broadband or internet and here we are in a technology world, Mm -hmm. uh, now we're putting technology inside the prisons to give men and women an on-ramp to be able to change their lives when they come home. 
we definitely have to build an infrastructure across our nation, just not in technology, mm -hmm. but from education, from economics to healthcare, desert communities, food desert communities, all that. Yes. We have to look at ways of trying to be able to change the, those trajectories of people's lives. Absolutely. And so that's why I do what I do. You know, I may not make the black history books, but I'm going to grind as much as I can so that my daughter can say my daddy changed my life. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Tony, as we begin to, you know, I could double the length of this this episode, but in respectful of your time. <laughs> You're good. Um, I, you know, I just want to say before we get to the last question, how much I've appreciated this time with you and you know, your your spirit, we're in two different states, but your spirit it just comes through. And and I appreciate all of the work that you're doing to make changes in our country. It's it's such important work and and I just want to say thank you. Well, thank you, Jackie. I'm so glad that um our paths cross. Yes. Um, because me too. when they told me about this this particular segment, you know, I usually do my homework a little bit and I check mm -hmm. the person out. And I was so impressed with your work and what you're doing and the platform that you have to be able to change people's lives. And I was honored to be a part of it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Tony, what's the message that you want to leave our listeners with today? The biggest thing I want to tell you that I think mass incarceration, men and women in our prisons, we can't keep up with the numbers. The numbers are too great. 78 million men and women are, are, have felony records. We have a record number of our veterans in our prisons right now mm -hmm. who come home from fighting some of the longest wars. It's so much now that a lot of correctional facilities have what they call veteran dorms mm -hmm. because we have so many veterans, they want to keep them together. Yeah, We have men and women that's on felony paper all across our nation where fines are stopping them from being able to take care of their children and being able to get transportation to go to work. We're still in today's technology world releasing men and women from prison who don't have their driver's license, social security, and birth certificate. Yeah. There's something wrong with that in this day of age of modern technology. Push for your local legislatures and your um, state representatives to get our systems to talk together yes. so that when a man or woman gets ready to go home, we can get their birth certificate, driver license, social security card, even just an ID card mm -hmm. so that they can rent a, a home, a place to live instead of living on our streets in tents right. or right. being able to get their education while they're incarcerated. Mm -hmm. Is it a second bite? Yes. But we as a great nation should look at trying to educate a person all the way until they're 100 if we can, if we truly believe in continuing education. That's right. Just because a person mess up doesn't mean they can't get up. And mm. we got to look at ways of being able to uh, help those individuals who can get up because they can contribute to our nation. And lastly, I would say that make sure that you are fully engaged. Mm -hmm. Don't sit back. Don't just don't do anything. Don't read the headlines and, and just have an opinion, research, look at both sides, form an, a, an opinion, but more importantly, do something for somebody. Mm. At, the, at, at the end of every Sunday school lesson, my friend Jimmy Carter, at every Sunday school lesson, he's done hundreds of thousands of them throughout his lifetime. He said, I challenge you to go home and do something for somebody. Mm. Do something for your neighbor, help somebody out, 
the neighbor that you don't even know, that you don't, they live right next to you, you don't know their names, do something for them. Bake them a cake. Say hi to them. Mm-hmm. But do something for them. Africa was not a close neighbor to America. But from Plains, Georgia, President Carter went to Africa and helped eradicate the Guinea worm. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget, Jackie, when this, this, this man from Africa who had just graduated from medical school mm-hmm. came to Sunday school to see President Carter. And I didn't think President Carter was going to show up. But he finally came in with his wheelchair. He was sitting in the front row. I went up to President Carter. I said, listen, this man, he's from Africa. He just graduated from medical school. He just wants to meet you. I know you're tired. I know you don't feel all that great. But he just wants. He said, well, bring him up, Tony. Bring him up. And I brought him up, Jackie. This, this man from Africa with his family behind him got on one knee with tears running down his face, looked at President Carter and said, you eradicated the guinea worm in Africa. It saved my life as a kid. It saved my family life. My wife is back there. My children are here. I just graduated from medical school. And I just want to stop by and tell you thank you. Wow. Jackie, I looked back and President Carter had leaned in and both their foreheads were touching each other. Mm. And they both were bawling and crying. It reminded me of the story in the Bible where Jesus healed 10 lepers. Mm -hmm. And then he said, only one came back to say thank you. And he said, didn't I heal 10? And only one came back? But that one made, it made his day that at least one came back to say Mm -hmm. thank you. Mm -hmm. And that was the greatest moment, I believe, for President Carter, that this man from Africa came back to say thank you. And I would imagine his heart was touched the same way he was touched by those Africans who are now Americans was in that cemetery. Mm-hmm. It became full circle for him mm-hmm. yeah. that he was able to do something right or wrong that our nation did to oppress African-Americans, put them in slavery and make them work for peanuts or not using peanuts and and, and tongue in cheek, but barely anything as sharecroppers. Mm-hmm. And right. I believe President Carter was moved by that. Mm-hmm. And that's why they both were there crying. Yeah. So yeah. I, I hope your listeners know that we can do some something for someone in another country, mm-hmm. even in another state, another city, rural community, inner city, even locked up in our prisons. Yeah. Don't just get up every day and not be grateful and you never do anything. Yeah. Do something for somebody. I love you know, that. Thank you for sharing that. Tony, how can people learn more about your work and get in touch with you? Well, um, I'm overly exposed. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> but you can find me on Facebook. You know, I do a lot of stuff on Facebook. I, I, I'm very transparent on Facebook, some of the work that I do. I'm on LinkedIn as well. I'm very trans. I use LinkedIn to highlight best practices around criminal justice reform. And some of the things that our company is doing that are, I think is changing the game in a major way. Mm-hmm. Those, that, those are my two social media platforms that I have. Awesome. So, but I'm overly exposed everywhere. I'm also <laughs> JBAS Ministries on Wednesdays and Sundays. And so I try not to be too overly exposed, but I do know that to whom much is given, much is required. And that I'm required in this space to give to give myself as much as I can. So that's how people can stay in touch with me. Awesome. 
Well, Tony, thank you again so much. This has been such an impactful hour. I appreciate your amazing stories and sharing the incredible work that you're doing. And again, just thank you. Well, I hope that the people that are listening to you forward your platform to five other people and tell them to listen in and, and grow your, like Jabez said, Lord, expand my territory for your glory mm-hmm. so they can expand you because you're doing the right work. And mm-hmm. so many people always say they share stuff with their friends, they share TikTok and all these other things. Share something that's important and get them to follow her. Follow Jackie. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining me for this episode. Please take a moment to subscribe and review this podcast and share this episode with a friend. Become a part of our community on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. This show was edited and produced by Airfluence. I'm Jackie Ferguson. Join us for our next episode of Diversity Beyond the Checkbox. Take care of yourself and each other.